Hi, I'm Phil Morehart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended almost every aspect of our lives, but it hasn't stopped them. In fact, it served as a rallying point, with people becoming more industrious and more creative as they find ways to support each other in these uncertain times. Here in the library world especially, we're seeing libraries responding with everything from creating online programming options for patrons self-isolating at home, to opening their doors to serve as day shelters for people experiencing homelessness. The ingenuity and care across the profession is heartening. Today, on the Dewey Decimal Podcast, two librarians share with us their stories, efforts, and wisdom. First, I speak with Felton Thomas, CEO of Cleveland Public Library, about that library's use of 3D printers to make personal protective equipment for emergency workers. Then I talk with Evan Knight, preservation specialist at the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners, about handling and cleaning library materials to prevent the spread of COVID-19. But first, a word from a sponsor. We're all looking for advice and best practices on how to move forward and do our jobs during this pandemic. Live, American Library's webinar series, has brought together experts from around the world to help. Visit the Live archives at AmericanLibraries.org for the Libraries and COVID-19 series, which includes programs on topics such as managing strategies and stress, providing virtual services, considering copyright during a crisis, and using 3D printing to make personal protective equipment. Again, you can find those webinars and more at AmericanLibraries.org. On April 13th, Cleveland Public Library jumped into action, using its 3D printers to make personal protective equipment for emergency workers on the front lines of the pandemic throughout the city. I spoke with Felton Thomas, CEO of Cleveland Public Library, about the endeavor and more. Now, your library, Cleveland Public Library, has um, been making at a very fast pace um, face shields um, for for uh, emergency workers. Um, now, when did when did the library decide to take action and, and and start this project? Whose idea was it? Well, it began with a call from um, the city's risk manager. He uh, actually sent me an email and was interested in um, whether we might be able to help them. They needed uh, face shields and face masks. Um, and so they were looking for any help that we could do. He knew of our tech central um, where we do 3D printing, and he had heard that um, folks were doing 3D printing, and so he was excited by the opportunity and, and said, is there any way that you guys might be able to help? Well, our staff at our tech center had started to really focus on what in what way could we give back? What way could they be a part of a process? And so um, they had started doing prototypes a week before we received this request, and oh. this was the right timing for us to kind of move forward on it. 
Oh yeah. And who exactly um uh are these face shields being made for? What's um is there a specific uh set of of, wor- of emergency workers? Yeah, the original request is they they wanted to make sure that um they their medical and first responders had additional part um uh, opportunities for safety. And so in the end, you know, we knew this was going to be for um our police staff our fire staff and emergency medical services staff, um, and then the emergency staff at our airports. Oh, wow. Now, these, from what, from what I've read, that you have 13 3D printers in use cranking out these shields. Um, is this all located, like, in one such location? You mentioned the tech center. Is that, uh, what branch is that at? So it's at our main building downtown, and uh, we have, as you can say, 13 um, 3D printers six of them downtown, seven of them at libraries uh, across the city. And so we uh, needed to kind of pull this all together. So we went out and we brought all of the 3D printers all downtown. So we're doing all of the work from our main uh, main space downtown. Oh, wow. Um, now, did you, um, as far as the logistics go of, 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 of designing these um, uh, these masks, how did, how did that happen? Did you have to partner with any outside group on the design and uh, what type of, like, materials did you need? I think there's, like, a lot of uh, logistical questions and, and, and things to consider in a project this large. Yeah, so we were uh, – the first thing that we wanted to do was have a meeting with the first responders and the medical staff for the city to, um, to make sure that what we could do was going to work for them. Um, and mm-hmm. so the – the risk manager brought all the folks from from fire, police, um, from the uh, airport onto a, you know, a, a Zoom call with us. And we all were able to um, look at the design that we had at our Tech Central. Sorry, Susie Perez, who's our Tech Central manager, was in uh, actually doing the design, had some, showed them what we had, and they were able to kind of give some, some thoughts on the design. and help us to kind of maneuver it in a way that was going to be helpful for them. And so after the call, it was like, you know, is this going to work for all of you? And they were like, absolutely. And so we knew we, we can move forward. One of the things that we know, we could do the 3D printing of the of the uh, facial piece, but the kind of plastic that goes along with that, uh, you know, we didn't have that plastic. And so they um, said, don't worry about that. We'll reach out to we have a lot of folks who have been working with us on the, on the retail side. Let's see if we can get someone to donate the plastic. And Lowe's um, decided to, to join in with us in donating the plastic. And so we have a partnership with Lowe's on the plastic, and we're doing the face shield. Oh, excellent. Um, now this this project has started on April 13th, last, last Monday. Um, how many have you has the library made so far? So as of last week, we are at about 600. Uh, we're doing about 85 per day. Our, our, you know, our, our goal is to do 2,000. Um, you know, the city is like anything you can do. And um, what they want to do, and the the thing that they love about this is that one, you know, these things can can be cleaned, um, uh, and the fact that they they can be used. But they want to have additional, um, uh, you know, units for other folks. Um, on their staff. So we are going to continue this process 
even beyond the 2000 that we were making currently for them. Oh, great. Um, now, do you, do you anticipate making any other type of materials besides the shields? Right now, I think the shields are, are what we're really trying to focus on because not only mm-hmm. do we know there's the need um, with the city, but there's going to be a need with other institutions who who saw the article. I mean, and we've got a lot of press around it. Um, we're in, uh, got some TV exposure around it, and of course, everyone else saw and, and knew that they could be used could use the face shields as well. So we've got some requests from churches some requests for some other institutions. So we're examining how we continue to work to make sure not only we're able to fill some of those needs, but also needs for our staff as well. Oh, that's excellent. Um, now, for any of our listeners out there, um, the libraries, librarians, um, who might want to, to use their uh, makerspaces and 3D printers for, for similar means, do you have any um, tips for them? Like, where should they start? Well, the first thing they can do is start looking online. There are a number of different designs that are approved um, by the medical field, um, you know, so they can look and find designs that have some form of approval, either by the medical or science fields, that they feel comfortable in doing. Uh, we want to make sure that, you know, that this was something that we felt uh, uh, wasn't going to be, uh, you know, a detriment to it. Uh, the folks who we were trying to get it was going to be certainly of a benefit. So you want an approved um, model to use when you go in 3D print so you know that you're doing something that's going to have value for the senior members. Then I would say if you know of a, a group that you want to work and provide them for, want to make sure that you're looking at the level of plastic, where is the plastic going to be, so that it, it's something that they feel comfortable with. Um, many of these folks will be wearing um, – uh, face masks or goggles underneath that. So you need to know that when you're creating the design, how to put that completely over the face so that everybody feels comfortable with what you're designing. So you'll want to make sure you're working with whoever you're going to be designing for so that they feel comfortable with the design you've created. COVID-19 has all of us searching for information and the latest news on response to the pandemic from both the library world and the American Library Association. You can turn to us, American Libraries, for both. Visit American Libraries online daily for up-to-the-minute news, ranging from stories on how and when libraries will reopen after the pandemic, to features on how to sanitize collections, and more. Once again, that's at AmericanLibraries.org. Libraries across the country Whether they're open now or waiting to reopen, all face a common problem. What to do with returns, materials coming back that could potentially be contaminated with COVID-19. I spoke with Evan Knight, Preservation Specialist at the Massachusetts Board of Library Commissioners, about just that. Are we are we in uncharted waters right now? Is there any precedent in history for libraries uh, having to handle or not handle collections for health safety reasons? I think that's a fantastic question. And uh, what I know about the um, you know the library and public library movement in in this country is it's actually a relatively recent phenomenon. You know, 1850s on, um, and so our precedent really only goes back to that, and actually probably. 
um, far less um, as public health has also evolved during that time quite a bit as well. So not only have libraries changed a lot um, in the past 150 years, but public health has as well. So the precedent, I have not seen um, a lot of precedent for libraries to handle um, collections for health and safety reasons. Um, precedents, I think, that we've heard about during this period and maybe before then more historically from my perspective, they tend to have been sort of like whole-scale mass treatments, chemical treatments, or sort of throwing, even just physical, just throwing away of volumes that may have been affected. Even, you know, although it's um, highly dramatic, like also the burning, you know, of potentially affected materials, all that anecdotal evidence is, to me, somewhat extremely aggressive as a response to one's collections, but it's been done in the past as precedent. There are, however... Um, some things I can look to about precedent. Well, first of all, that some folks are already responding to um, their closures and their library services in certain ways. So in the state of Massachusetts, there are some folks who are going forward with a local solution, which mm, that's at least a precedent, though there may be some um, uh, maybe some issues that one can – that might – you know, affect both the collection stability as well as the public health in their community that one might really want to consider. Um, uh, and then the second thing I thought of about precedent was, there, and I'm familiar with one library that um, will remain nameless, but they actually had a bed bug infestation. And so to get rid of that, um, although that's not necessarily, although it is help for health and safety in some way, but um, they shut down for a while and actually had a um, industrial chemical Solution kind of fogged in to their to their collections and book drops, and again, that's something that uh, I can't really speak to about the uh, whether that's like the right solution or not. I, it, what I can tell you is that that exposure of chemicals to the, the materials, it's unknown what those effects would be on those library materials. Yeah, so we are kind of in uncharted waters. Which um, what is the best method to prevent the spread of COVID-19 on library materials? Is there one yet? So I think um, I have to defer to public health officials, scientists, um, the CDC, um, and um, in particular the Institute of Museum and Library Services recently held a um, – recently hosted uh, two scientists from the, the CDC um, on a webinar regarding – um, how to mitigate risks um, to paper-based collections uh, mm. from COVID-19. And that, that presentation was split into two parts. One, uh, both of these scientists, by the way, were a part of their uh, the CDC's Community Intervention Task Force. Um, so part of their job was getting out to the public and sharing good information. And I think following their guidelines is the best way to go. And that's really the most responsible way to go, in my opinion, for every librarian who's dealing with this issue. Try to connect, and this is also said by the scientists, connect with your local health officials, your state health officials, your local emergency manager, your state emergency management agency, to really try and get the best information about what's happening in your community and to have clear and constant communication with them. We have guidance from the CDC on how to prevent the spread of it. And honestly, it's fairly clear. It's person-to-person -person interaction is the highest rate of transmission. Mm -hmm. Second is high-touch surfaces on non-porous surfaces. Um, so, so cleaning and disinfecting, 
non-porous hard surfaces is recommended. I, and by the way, those surfaces should be cleaned by EPA-approved chemicals and what's called LIFT-N. Now, for, for some libraries, as they're opening work, but they're still opening, they're receiving materials back, they're returned. Um, is quarantine, just letting the materials sit uh, untouched, is that an option? Yeah, that's a really great question, one that libraries in Massachusetts and I'm sure beyond are dealing with, and we're, my agency, the Mass Board of Library Commissioners, is definitely thinking about. Um, and so there are uh, some projects in the works to provide some better guidance on this, which I think is the sort of the next phase in what, in uh, at least my and my agency's response to sort of, we've had the closures happen and now, well, what's next? And developing some guidance on that. So, you know, Pointing out that uh, scientific guidance, um, particularly from that CDC webinar, they're fairly straightforward and very clear how long the quarantine may be necessary before the virus dies. And that's um, summed up uh, with a 24-hour period. Um, But in Massachusetts, there's been some belief and and talk, and and it's my – you know, professional view too that those scientists may not have understood one, how much plastic is really among our library collection. And two, the varieties of lending practices and, you know, sometimes the strange lives of books when they, when they get to people's houses. Um, so, uh, and by that I mean, you know, the, I feel like the, uh, the, the scientific guidance we've got was like there was a specific point in that in the webinar in which um, um, Dr. David Brendes uh, uh, mentioned that, like, you know, unless someone is sneezing directly in your book, you know, you, you probably don't need to do X or Y or whatever. Well, mm-hmm. I think a lot of librarians on that call sort of, like, looked at each other virtually and were like, well, you know, that actually can happen, and folks have seen yeah. some strange things. So uh, regarding quarantine, the guidance from them was uh, – from the CDC, was 24 hours is, is a reasonable time. Then I look at something from the Public Health of England. So they would recommend actually 72 hours for historic homes and sites and museums. So there's a little bit of discrepancy that folks have seen. There are other questions about isolation, too, that I think have come up that I want to point out. And I wish I could say, you know, just do just isolate your collections for 24 hours and you'll be fine. But unfortunately, it's evolving to a point where we're not totally sure just yet. For example, in an isolation space, like what does what does the ideal isolation space look like? Like, is there an air exchange requirement, like to get air flowing? Is the time of 24 hours or 72 um, is that a hard and fast rule? Um, or where among those, if we could get a more um, maybe another scientific look or another webinar or another um, maybe forum from scientists about what might actually uh, be best to be rolled out more nationally or guidance more nationally or um, on what the right quarantine might be. Those are the folks who should be answering those questions and helping us with that. And actually, that's something we're, we're working on as well. But again, right now, it's unresolved, in my opinion. And again, that thing on the idea of what does the, the isolation space look like that that would be so let's say we do pin down a time that would uh, be the ideal quarantine period. Well, what does that isolation space look like? Does it have to be totally shut off from human contact? How little is okay? How much or little of contact is okay? And 
And does the object still need to be cleaned and disinfected after that? I think that is, a, especially if it's a hard, non-porous surface, like a plastic dust jacket or covering. I think um, all these questions that I think uh, should be resolved and people are working on, um, but I think before moving forward with providing, I think there's not concrete answers on that just yet. I still believe in isolation very much. I think isolation is the cheapest and least damaging approach to protecting one's collections. It's just so much uh, easier logistically. Um, well, although we'll get to that a little bit more too, because I do think like large-scale ILL and delivery services and when library services do reopen again, there will be this mass amount of books that will come at one time are going to be logistical issues. And I do think um, there are some benefits uh, to preparing for isolation of certain materials rather than preparing for massive cleaning of library materials. So um, space is actually something that folks have been talking about a lot. So isolation is still going to be, I think, recommended um, by most collections professionals as they interpret a lot of these guidelines. Um, but there are definitely going to be logistical issues in how to get that space and how to make sure it's the right space and uh, follow up with not only um, like the workflow of returning uh, materials and adding an isolation component to that, but also making sure the library workers that deal with these things, that deal with the return of these objects, that they're going to have the proper PPE and the proper protective, you know, practices um, uh, known as well as hand sanitizer and materials like a stocked bathroom, making sure that those folks will be ready as well is going to be another large component of all that as well. And you, said, you mentioned the, uh, there's the potential to damage collections by, by potentially using disinfectants and solvents and whatnot. Um, what, what, what is that risk? Is that uh, like, and, and what, I guess the different question, what items in particular are at a greater risk and how do you recommend those things be handled? I think the drawback to using materials for books is, or for using aqueous uh, cleaning and disinfectants for books is um, uh, a few. I would say some of the biggest damage you'll see is from water damage to the pages of books and also water damage to the binding as well as to the binding covering. So um, water damage, you know, it may range from just um, uh, staining. Uh, but also for the binding stability, it can affect um, the hinges and joints, and so it can weaken those hinges and joints. So um, I think the damage that you'll see is going to be um, worst for those objects that don't have any mylar or protective covering, and in particular, it's going to be uh, horrible for historic leather, um, yeah. which is uh, – so I, I, I think for – Libraries with some historic collections, uh, particularly those, you know, 19th century and earlier um, uh, volumes bound in leather. Uh, if they can, if, if folks can limit access preemptively to those collections, um, almost as if um, they're sort of shutting off access uh, to uh, uh, beforehand, I said that's I don't strongly recommend that because cleaning those is going to be um, highly disfiguring um, and structurally damaging to the collections. I think historic cloth bindings from, let's say, 1820s through probably even 1940s, a lot of the cloth there, um, it may you may have a lot of staining with the dyes used in the coverings will run as well. 
um, but those same issues remain again. Um, but then when you think about more modern bindings, um, a lot of those cloth coverings are um, tend to be pretty heavy, heavily impregnated with some like plastics, uh, and so it's plastic and buckram, plastic and cloth. Um, so to me, those those are going to be sturdier and for an aqueous response, but um, I still wouldn't recommend uh, that if possible. And then finally, um, there's books that are totally covered by dust jackets, and so I think those are far more sturdy to any aqueous um, any aqueous cleaning than anything else. Than, so for example, wiping uh, I think is to me the least wiping of plastic is the least risky to a, the stability of a binding. Now, for, for any libraries or librarians who are listening right now, I'm sure that they're all formulating their own materials cleaning plans right now. Um, what Do you have any words of advice or tips for them? Like, where should they start? What I've seen in Massachusetts is a lot of folks getting, a lot of libraries getting pressure to enact specific cleaning procedures upon their reopening when we don't know that when that reopening is happening. And to, uh, and I, I think a word of advice I might give is just, to wait a little bit more um, and um, just to connect with both uh, public health folks in your community, not just one's uh, municipal administration, but the public health folks as well as state agencies and state library agencies to help support that um, kind of emerging advocacy that I think folks may need to do to say, Getting back up to speed is going to take some time. We're not there yet. Let's wait a little bit to see what emerges as best practices, um, if we can, um, because I think the questions of, of isolation and how long and what makes a, the proper isolation space are kind of fundamental issues that we need to consider before um, and we need to answer better before we ramp up our work again. And if it precludes having to clean everything multiple times, I think that would make our libraries' lives easier. I'd also suggest that it seems to be that with buildings being closed for a while, although isolation of materials seems like, you know, for smaller places in particular, you know, we can't do that because we don't have the space. If the public, if there's going to be a staggered reopening of services or even of the building's availability, so, for example, if lending services can ramp up before the public buildings open, well, then isolation actually might seem to be able to work maybe a little better than um, than if not. So, cleaning the materials, I think, is um, it's not that it's the last resort, but there will be damage to your materials if you uh, enact cleaning practices, and then also you're exposing the people who are doing the cleaning to potentially this virus. And so, it's not as if it's um, an airtight solution to protecting your collection. Um, so um, I guess stay tuned, stay connected to folks in, in your community as well as to librarians um, and folks who are interested in this uh, um, topic nationally. And also for any questions, definitely look to um, uh, about the cleaning and disinfecting those high-touch services and for topics in social distancing and promoting preventive actions from the transmission of the virus. Definitely look to guidance from the CDC, um, from the EPA's list N of approved disinfectants um, to really reduce those points that 
reduce the risk of uh, human exposure. And that's what I think folks should continue to think about it, reducing human exposure and then how our collections can fit into, our, our collections responses can fit into that is the most important thing. That wraps another episode of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Many thanks to Felton Thomas and Evan Knight for sharing their stories and expertise with us. Join us next month as we look at privacy and libraries in the age of COVID-19. Don't forget, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, or you can reach out to me directly at deweydecibel at ala.org. Show ideas, praise, complaints, anything at all, we want to hear from you. As always, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association, and this is the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thank you.